0: Reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. Starting in verse 30, we're going to go through 46. And remember, this is the verse after the Last Supper. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same too. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a, little, went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this can't pass away, unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying again the same thing once more. Then He came to the disciples and said, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays Me is at hand. Lord Jesus... Again, we're at a familiar story, one that we come to every year during this season. Don't let it hit us um, and bounce off of our minds and our hearts, Lord. Open our minds and hearts to what it is you're saying to us, Lord. Help us to hear the good news in your word and to trust you afresh. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to start with a question, kind of, kind of bold, and it's a question to me too. Are you loyal? Are you a loyal person? And maybe, uh, more accurately, I should say, to whom or to what are you loyal? To whom or to what are you loyal? Everyone is loyal to something. I think it's a human trait that we are loyal. It's it's, it's sad but true that oftentimes the, uh, the agency or the groups of people who really tell us a lot about human nature are the ones with lots of money because they want your money. And advertising companies spend billions of dollars every year to get your money and they're really smart. And they know that if they can get a child to have brand loyalty before the ages of 6 or 8, they probably have that child for life. And so they create products that are more than products, they're, just, they're also personalities. So instead of just selling something with a cat on it, it's Hello Kitty, with all her invasive little products that are everything from pencil erasers to stuffed animals to t-shirts and clothing lines. I think there's probably even a show, I, I don't know. Throw the Star Wars brand on anything and you've got preteen boys or pastors in their late thirties for life. In fact, I have a theory about the whole Star Wars thing. Like I, I tutor all these little kids and especially like in Sophia's age and younger, a lot of these kids have never even seen Star Wars, but they've got all the Star Wars stuff. Who are they marketing to? The parents, right. Exactly. Adult advertising is a bit more subtle. Our personalities are, are leveraged to make us feel a certain way about things. So we're duped into choosing sides. You're either Mac or you're wrong. I mean, PC. You're, 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 you're American car or import car. You're Seattle Sounders or... There's nothing really else than that, right? Uh, advertisers play on our insecurities to make us loyal. This product will make you feel more sexually attractive. Or that one will make you feel more powerful. If you buy this brand of appliance, it will never break down and will ease your life. And on the concept of loyalty, there seems to be a spectrum, kind of different stages of depth of loyalty. I would call stage one loyalty the stage of ideals. The stage of ideals. I am loyal to the best idea. The best way of thinking about my situation or the world around me. And it's in, the, it's in the stage of ideals where we have people becoming loyal to a philosophy or loyal to a religion. Ideals can influence change and they can be used to prevent change. They can do harm or they can cause us to do great good. But ideals in themselves don't create very lasting loyalty. Loyalty. Okay. Ideals in themselves don't create very lasting loyalty. If it's just a matter of ideals and you start pulling my fingernails out, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have different ideals. Whatever you want, man. It's, it's just ideas. But there's the second level, and I would call it the blood level, even though um, I'm not just talking about genetic relatives, like I'm talking about anyone you would call your family. So some of us uh, have people in our lives that you call uncle or aunt, so-and-so, they're not even related to you, but they're just part of the family, you know what I'm talking about? It's the second level, family relationships. They're so powerful. And you know, our, our loyalty to family oftentimes trumps our loyalty to ideals, and and the first thing that came to mind was a negative situation. There's a lot of families out there that, that live with deep dysfunction. Maybe you've got an alcoholic spouse and one who's not. And, and the ideals, I mean, they all know the ideal of a healthy family. But it's the loyalty to the family that keeps people together, sometimes wrongly, sometimes in a very damaging way. On the positive side, family bonds, man, you can endure a lot. With a family, the ups and downs, the disappointments of life, the losses and flat-out sins. There's a lot that family relationships, friendship relationships can endure. That's the second level. But perhaps the most powerful loyalty level, I would call it, the third level, is the level of shared experience. There's something... Intangible and extremely powerful about shared difficult experiences or unique experiences. I would say that the men and women uh, of the fire firefight, you know, firefighters or police—that's almost a subculture—if you've ever worked around that group of people. That you know, when when you have to be such a well-oiled machine. To live or die every day, you become tight. When you you see unique things like the horrors of an auto crash or or a fatality in in a fire or, uh, you know, just horrible, you know, police have to go in together and see a lot of times horrible uh, domestic violence and things like that. There's something that that galvanizes you. I I see this in military uh, war veterans sometimes. You know, uh, veterans who love their families, who have great loyalty to their families, great loyalty to maybe even a church. But there's something about the band of brothers or band of sisters that when you've gone through the trenches together, no one else understands that experience. It's the united experience that that creates this extreme loyalty. And most of the times in real life, you're not just either ideals or family or experience. Those, Those worlds overlap, right? So blood relatives or or family bonds, you you go through things together. So you have this, this family that's then like if you've ever had a child together or something like that, or you've ever gone through a very difficult thing together or shared a wonderful experience. It's this double bond. It becomes even more powerful. And just on this aside here, I was thinking about churches. Churches that not only sing and pray together, but also eat together and serve together are much more powerful. But that's a whole other sermon. Now, I bring up this introductory material on loyalty, because it is the glue of lasting relationships. And we as a church are worshipping the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that requires relationship. This is Palm Sunday, the Sunday we remember that Jesus rode into Jerusalem for the last time. He was greeted by crowds of people who celebrated Him, who saw His arrival as the fulfillment of the prophet Zechariah chapter 9, where God would send His Deliverer. Now how did we get, in less than a week, from Palm Sunday to Gethsemane? Where were Jesus' loyal followers from Palm Sunday? In the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the end, were there any loyal followers of Jesus? Now I want to forget the crowds just for a moment. You know, Palm Sunday, there's all these crowds there doing the thing. I want to forget the crowds just for sake of argument. And focus on the twelve. The twelve men who had heard Jesus' mighty words in the Sermon on the Mount. They heard Him speaking unlike any of the scribes, of the teachers, of the priests they had ever heard before. Jesus spoke as one is having authority. They kept following Him. They liked His ideals. Then they followed Jesus down a mountain, into the roads and city streets, across stormy seas, they saw Jesus Firsthand. They didn't have to read about it thousands of years later. They saw him perform mighty deeds. Firsthand. They saw a leper, and then he wasn't all of a sudden. The little girl who had died, they saw her alive again. The guy, Mark's gospel, dude had legion of demons. That's 6,000 demons, no problem. Cast them out with the word. They saw this firsthand. There were 12 people who saw this. The disciples. And they were like family. They camped out with him. They probably shared stories around the fire. I bet you they had inside jokes, just like you and your friends when you hang out for a long time. Things happen and you laugh about it. Nobody else gets it. They shared life together. They had ideals. Stage one. They had family. They were family for three years. Stage two. There's a lot of loyalty there. But then... Jesus sent them out. He sent out His disciples in pairs. He gave them authority to preach the gospel, to cast out demons. They went out in pairs into the streets and to villages. They hung out with their buddies and cast out demons and healed people and proclaimed the good news. And they saw things happen. Unique experiences that no one else had had. Life-changing experiences. Loyalty-building experiences. Now, Palm Sunday comes, and these twelve probably led the way in celebrating their master coming into Jerusalem. Not only is he the king coming from Ze- 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 Zechariah 9, but he's our friend. Like, we're with that guy. Loyal, loyal. They were the twelve closest people To Jesus, ever. Have you ever thought about that? Ever. They were invited to the Passover supper with Jesus. And it was to the twelve, the twelve, only the twelve, that Jesus shared his fate. I'm going to be crucified. He shared his bread. And he shared the wine of the new covenant. It was a shock then that one of the twelve most blessed people on the face of the earth, Judas Iscariot, would betray Jesus. There's some foreshadowing going on there, of course. How could one of the twelve betray Jesus? But as soon as we start to think about that, we don't have time because the story keeps going. They finish supper. They go out singing a song, most likely a Hillel Psalm. Psalms 113 through 118 are called the Hillel Psalms. Hallel means praise. It's, it's the root where you get the word hallelujah, which means praise Yahweh. And you would always sing these psalms coming out of the Passover meal. I like that little bit of insight because you can, you know, the psalms are a great treasure. We can, when we say the psalms, we can imagine Jesus was singing these same psalms. All was going pretty well. 11 out of 12 disciples, that ain't bad. But then Jesus rocks the 11, he rocks their known world. He says, You will all betray me. He says, You will all lose your loyalty, or rather, your lack of true loyalty will be revealed. I think that's probably more accurate. Even after sharing the same ideals and family bonds and experiences in the trenches. Now how does Jesus know? Because the Bible tells him so, just like the kid's song. He came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, fulfilling Zechariah 9. He is betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, echoing Zechariah 11. And in Zechariah 13, which he quotes in our text, it says that the shepherd of the sheep would be struck down... And that the sheep would scatter. Notice that even Jesus reads the prophets Christocentrically. Big word. He sees himself as being the fulfillment of those messianic prophets. Now, think about this. What if somebody came up to you and said, I don't trust you. Nobody. ...likes their loyalty questioned... ...especially a family member... ...especially a close friend... ...nobody likes that... ...right? Nobody likes to have their loyalty questioned... ...there's almost nothing worse than the classic line from parents... ...I'm disappointed in you... ...it's like, no, just hit me or something... ...I don't know if I can trust you anymore... ...I mean, that digs deep... ...right? Having your loyalty questioned... ...gets to the heart... ...of who you really are... ...and of course, Peter... thinks thinks he's the exception to the rule. Now, I know we just kind of read over that kind of quickly, but think of how much of a jerk Peter kind of is, right? Like, let's say we're all together, and Jesus says, you all, letter streets, are going to betray me, and then I'll be the bad guy, I'll say. (laughs) Like, right in front of you, you say, they're kind of weak, but I won't betray you? I mean, he does this, like, right in front of them, he's like, they might all leave you, but I will never leave you. In fact, I will die with you. Jesus tells him, Peter, tonight, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Now this mention of the rooster crowing isn't, isn't necessarily talking about like a rooster. Like In that culture, there was a term called the cock crow. And it was a Roman term. It was used for the hours between 1 and 3 a.m., So I think Dale Bruner says it very well. Peter thinks that that his deeply felt commitment will last forever. Jesus tells him it will not last the night. That is the meaning of that whole cock crow, rooster crow thing. Peter thinks he's in it for life. Jesus tells him before the night's even over, you're going to deny me three times. But Jesus knows. He knows that up until now, the disciples have endured a lot, but mostly what they've experienced has been wonderful, miraculous, positive. They are groupies of the most amazing man ever would you not be loyal to that when everything is going well? You know, storm in the sea? No problem. I'm with him. He just says it and it calms down. Somebody died around here? No problem. I'm with that guy. He just makes it all better. I mean, how could you not be loyal to that Jesus? I mean, it's awesome. But also, Jesus has been noticing something. He's been telling them over and over and over again, hey guys, I'm, I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be crucified. And they don't get it. On the one hand, they totally misunderstand. On the other spectrum, they completely deny it. And Jesus knows they are not equipped to handle, to receive, to understand, to comprehend what's about to happen to Him. And it makes me think, does my loyalty to Jesus falter when things are not going smoothly? It's one thing to follow Jesus when things are going well, but what about in the midst of suffering and pain? What about while experiencing loss? What about my loyalty then? It makes me wonder if the twelve who spent three years of their lives with Jesus denied Him, all of them, What about me? And not only the twelve, but Peter himself. Remember, Peter's name was Simon, and then Jesus starts following Jesus. Jesus calls him Rock, Petros. You're the Rock, and on you I'm going to build my church. Like, this was the guy. If he can turn his back, if he can lose his loyalty to Jesus, what about me? Jesus, or Peter, was one of three men on the face of the earth who went up on a mountain with Jesus, saw him transfigured, saw Elijah, saw Moses, and then heard the voice of God say, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. One of those guys. Now Peter went from willing to die to Jesus to falling asleep three times and denying him before the dawn, What about me, and what about you? You know me, I just can't help, but there's so much good news here. If you look at verse 32, I'm just there's a little teaser trailer. Listen to this. After I've been raised. So he tells them, You're gonna deny me. But after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Basically, this is what he's saying. You're going to betray me, but when I rise from the dead, I'm still going to lead you. I will still be your Lord. I will still be loyal to you. Well, yeah, That's just a gospel appetizer. To wet your palate. Think, that's first course. We're going to come around to that later, but there's more, more text here to get through. So they go to the Garden of Gethsemane now. All eleven. Judas is off doing his thing. He tells them to sit down. I'm going to go over there and pray. You guys wait here. But hey, Peter and um, sons of Zebedee, John, James, come with me guys. So... They're sitting over there. at The three, Peter, James, and John, get to go with Jesus a little further into the garden. With these inner three disciples, Jesus bears more of His heart. He doesn't do this with everybody. Just these three inner disciples. And he tells them to sit and wait. He tells them that he's deeply grieved and distressed. Now, what's odd to me is that Matthew... Okay, so Matthew's narrating this gospel, right? And Matthew tells us that Jesus said uh, that he was grieved. So Matthew tells us that. Then the next line, Jesus himself says, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Okay. Above all the other gospel writers, Matthew seems most interested in this idea of obedience to Jesus. Jesus is the one from the very first chapter that the new creation was going to come through him. And Matthew is setting this whole thing up as uh, Jesus, the, the one who calms storms. Jesus, the one who raises people from the dead. Jesus is the guy. Obey him. And yet here... Matthew seems to be driving home the point, really stepping on it, that Jesus is deeply distressed and grieved to the point of feeling deathly overwhelmed. Now, why is that important? As the church developed over the first few centuries, there were many heresies about Jesus. The first one that you may have heard of is called Arianism. Real creative because it was formed by a guy named Arius. And he taught that Jesus was the highest of all created beings. But that Jesus was not part of God. Not divine in himself. This heresy continues today in different forms. Maybe the most popular would be the Jehovah Witnesses. Who think Jesus is a really important guy. But not part of God. Not divine. Not divine. So that's one hand. You have uh, Arianism, where Jesus is the highest of all created beings, but not God. On the other hand, you have Apollinarianism, which is the brainchild of Apollinarius of Alexandria. These are real creative names. He taught that Jesus was a divine being, but not really a man. That he was just like pretending, like acting. So all the times when he was like, You know, I don't know uh, when the end will be. Only the Father knows that. He was just kind of pretending, which has a whole bunch of moral things. It means Jesus was lying a lot. So uh, Apollinarianism is that Jesus is just divine and not really a human being. And in between these two, we find uh, Nestorianism, which is the brainchild of Nestorius, which claims that Jesus was born a regular guy, and then at that baptism when he was an adult, the Holy Spirit, like kind of came on him and so now he is either have the, has a parasite of God in him literally or he's like schizophrenic so he's not man and God but he's like a man that God is just kind of like riding on his shoulder and saying certain things to him but sometimes he turns it off Nestorianism has these two separate uh, ways of being for God these three movements were declared heresies because they failed to take the biblical account seriously The Bible says that Jesus is the God-Man. That He is God in the flesh and that somehow fully God and fully human. And before His resurrection, that means that Jesus, even as fully God, was fully susceptible to pain and sickness and tiredness and frustration and yes, even depression. And that means... That Jesus understands and can relate. And there's no other God in the history of the world that really relates to people. They're all outside of humanity. This God chooses to become one of us without losing who He is, but accepting and taking on all that we are except for our sin. That means that Jesus was really so confused and so distressed that he felt crushed. If you struggle with depression, Jesus knows what that is like. Jesus knows what it is to feel alone. Jesus knows what it is to feel afraid. Jesus knows what it is to feel tempted. Jesus knows the deep need that you and I experience to know that there are friends in your life that have your back. So he takes Peter and James and John and asks them to wait up and to watch out for him while he just goes a little bit further to pray by himself. And boy, does he pray! He falls on his face, he cries out to his father, Father, If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. The cup is biblical symbology for judgment. Let this judgment pass from me. Jesus was about to endure judgment from God that belongs to me and to you and to the world. He prays if there is any other way. Oh, Father, I don't want to do this if there's any other way. Yet, not my will, but yours. He goes back to his closest friends. They can't even stay awake for him. Now, he's obviously disappointed and probably hurt. So he warns them to pray. He recognizes the limitations of the flesh, even if the desire is there. It's kind of like playing sports as you get a little bit older. It's like, yeah, I want to be where the ball is, but I'm just not there yet. I can't quite get there yet. And even if you remember how you used to get there, it just doesn't happen anymore. Like the flesh is weak. The, The spirit, the mind is willing. You know what you're supposed to do. You just can't quite get there. There's a battle going on. In Gethsemane, A battle that would change the course of the history of the world. And the battle of Gethsemane is the battle between the flesh and obedience to God. The battle of Gethsemane is the battle of the flesh versus obedience to God. Now, when the Bible talks about flesh in relation to the spirit, like spirit is willing, flesh is weak kind of talk, it's not suggesting, hear this, that the body or physical things are somehow bad. Flesh, in relation to the spirit, is the biblical way of talking about the world or fallen nature as opposed to God's will. All right? The disciples succumb to the flesh. They have sleepy bodies and tired eyes like some of you right now. But that is not their failure. The fact that they fell asleep is not their failure. You know, anyone can stay up if you've been motivated, or if you're motivated, right? Anyone ever work the night shift? You, you can do it, right? Like, you can stay up if you have to do that. In the military, you know, I would often have to stand watch in the middle of the night. Sometimes the mid-watch from 12 to 4, sometimes the 4 to 8 watch, was everybody hated that one because you have to get up at 3.30 and then do a whole work day after that. And if you, fall, if you were found asleep on your watch, there is heavy discipline. And in wartime, the, uh, the code of military justice still says that it's, it can be punishable by death if you fall asleep at your post during wartime. Now, I don't think that's often carried out unless you really let something bad happen. But the, the point is there that it's expected that human beings can stay awake right for one night. The point is the disciples fail because they don't discern what's really going on. Like if something's important to you, you stay awake. If you're going to get in trouble for it, you'll stay awake. If you're up with a sick kid, you're going to stay awake. They fail because they trust in their own strength. They may be thinking, "Ah, I'll conserve my strength, and if anyone tries to take Jesus, I'm taking him out which we kind of know Peter's thinking that way because he chops off a dude's ear with a sword later on. He's thinking they're, they're trusting in their own strength. But there are some things, and you know I'm right about this, in fact, I would say most things that we miss when we try and do them in our own strength. So how do we gain insight and perception? How are these disciples supposed to keep watch? Like Jesus says, keep watch. It's through prayer. The disciples failed because of lack of prayer. Jesus has victory in the Battle of Gethsemane because he prays. There's a shocking verse in Hebrews 5 8. I'm going to say it twice. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. Hebrews 5 8, talking about Jesus. Although he was a son, He learned obedience through the things he suffered. Jesus learned obedience. Is that shocking to you? It's a little bit. Because I think a lot of times we kind of lean towards this Apollinarianism, this heresy that Jesus, yeah, he's kind of human, but he's really mostly God. He's fully God and fully human. He really does relate to you. He really is your Lord. He really does learn something about obedience in the garden. Jesus first prays, If possible, Father, let this cup of judgment pass. Jesus is afraid. He's distressed. Hey, He's normal. Who would want to take the judgment of the world on themselves if they could get away from it, right? Who would want that? I mean, Jesus is not a masochist here. He prays again. But instead of his prayers trying to change God, Jesus' perspective is subtly changed. He knows now he must receive the cup. So in his second prayer, reaffirming his relationship with God, he starts out with, My Father, if this cannot pass, okay, so it, it cannot pass unless I drink it, let your will be done. First prayer, he's trying to get out of it. Second prayer, he's kind of resigned to it. Jesus has moved... Now, in learning through prayer, instead of trying to use prayer to make God do something, you find the disciples have fallen asleep again. He's alone now, except for with the Father. So he goes back to pray a third time. We don't know exactly what he says this third time. But in Luke's Gospel, we know that after he prayed the third time, something happens. Angels from God come and do what? you remember? They strengthen him. They strengthen him. And I believe that the first prayer Jesus asked was for a way out. That's the normal response, right? The second prayer, he was resolved to God's will. And the third prayer, I think he asked for strength to endure what he was now accepting. The disciples who did not pray were ill-equipped to understand what was about to happen. They, they could not endure it in their own strength. So they end up fleeing. But Jesus prays. And through His prayer to God, He realizes that it's God's will that He should suffer. And because it's God's will, He can endure it with God's help. All right. So what do we take away from this battle at Gethsemane. The first thing, kind of obvious, and please take this in the best way, be be really suspicious of your own strength. Be really suspicious of your own strength and loyalty. It turns out we're just not that strong. And, And I might say it like this, don't put your faith in your faith. Does that make sense? Don't put your faith in your faith. This whole thing about following Jesus, Christianity, if you want to call it that, being a disciple, is about faith in Jesus. Everybody's faith falters. So if you put your faith in your faith, there's going to be a lot of times when you don't have any of it. We need faith in Jesus, who's a solid rock, who is faithful when we are faithless. Who says things like, I know you're going to betray me, but when I come back, I'm going to go ahead of you and I'm still going to be your leader. Come meet me in, in, in Galilee. We need that kind of, of faith, of rock in our lives. Second, we see the importance, and, and I mean vital importance. Please don't hear this as, pastor's talking about prayer again. The vital importance of prayer. Prayer is the lifeblood. And I'm horrible. I am And down in my prayer. Don't think that this is coming from a master. But prayer is the lifeblood of what it is to be a follower of Jesus. It is the way we connect with God. Prayer gives us perspective. It's how God leads us. How many times are we faced with difficult decisions in life? Guess what? There is a God, and He likes to lead us. It's through prayer we connect with Him. It's through prayer that he moves mountains, like the mountains in our own heart. Can you imagine the size of the mountain in Jesus' chest that, was, that went from, oh my God, I don't want to take this cup of judgment, to strengthen me so that I can take it? That's a mountain. It, it's prayer that moves the kind of mountains of restor- uh, restoring a community. And it's been rightly said by so many different people, I don't even know who to quote. That prayer is not the preparation for the work of the church. It is the work of the church. God uses prayer to do His work. And if you don't like that, that's too spiritual for you. God uses prayers to do His work. Okay? There's some hands in there. Then you get your hands dirty. But we can't just go out and try and like, oh, I I read here where to follow Jesus means do this. So, okay, got it. Good luck. That's called recipe for burnout. And no lasting fruit. We need to be connected through prayer to the living God. My heart is, is moved, or was moved this week, and I'm reading through this passage. And you see, you know, the, the, the real, you know, it's not often we see the vulnerability of Jesus. But here, he really is grieved. And Luke tells us that he, he was sweating blood out of his pores. you probably read stuff on that physician say that's actually possible. All he was asking for was three closest friends to keep watch and to pray with them. And they fall asleep. And you know, in my righteousness, I want to say, God, if I could just be there, I could do better than that. Then I remember, you know, how weak I am. Maybe I would have stayed up all night, knowing what I know now. So what? I'd fail him a different time. Besides... Jesus has risen from the dead. He doesn't need me to stand watch with Him anymore. So what does this have for us today? What is this passage about? I think one of the things it's about is something that as I look out here, many of you are already doing very well. Keeping watch with one another. Did you know that the chapter before this in Matthew 25, Jesus is warning people, He's saying, you know, there's two types of people when the kingdom comes. They're the sheep and the goats. You know, you've heard this thing. And the people who belong to my kingdom, they're not just loyal with their words, but but they do things like, like when there's a stranger, they invite them in and, and they go visit and call on sick people and take care of them. And they visit the prisoner. And, and they clothe the naked and they, they, they feed the poor and they take care of people. That's the type of person who belongs in my kingdom. Because when you do those things to those people, you do them to me. So I read this and I'm like, I want to keep watch with you, Jesus, but you're gone now. You're resurrected. You're like, you don't need that. But what what we, we do get to do is to keep watch with one another. And when I care for you and you care for me and we as a church care for others, we are caring for Jesus. We're keeping watch with him. Isn't that a beautiful thing? You remember what I had said when we were going through John's Gospel, Leslie Newbegin says, uh, your neighbor is the person, is the agent authorized to receive what you owe the Master. I love that saying. Anytime you love someone else, you get to love Jesus. You get to keep watch with Him. When you pray for Lydia and the Thomas family, they're struggling at Children's Hospital, you were keeping watch with Jesus. Now I've talked about two things so far from this story. One is, I'm weak and so are you. Don't put too much faith in your faith. The second thing is this vital lifeline of prayer. But I want to suggest that from this passage, the, even those two great things... Are very much secondary to this third and final thing. And it's the gospel. The battle of Gethsemane is not a lesson on prayer, it's not primarily a lesson about your lack of loyalty. The battle of Gethsemane is the good news. The good news is that Jesus knew His disciples would fail Him and yet He promised that when He was resurrected He would still lead them. He knows they would fail, that you will fail, that I will fail, and He forgives. And if there's kids in the room, man, I know that it's hard to like figure out how you're walking with Jesus and, and you think, I'm just not ready yet, I'm just not ready yet because I see all these great people around me and they all got figure it figured out. As your pastor, children, I am saying, we do not have it figured out. That daily, daily I am in need of forgiveness to Jesus. That is the life of a disciple. It's the penitent heart. It's not the self-righteous person who has it all together. This is the one that says, I need you, Jesus, every day. At the battle of Gethsemane, Jesus fought... His flesh with prayer. Now ironically, His victory leads to His crucifixion. But ultimately, the Father was faithful and raised Him from the dead. And the good news is that because Jesus won the battle of Gethsemane, He's able now to rescue you and to rescue me and to rescue our world. What kind of God would do that? What kind of friend continues to invite you into his life, even though you betray time and time again? I'll tell you, his name is Jesus. And he invites you and me to follow. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I honestly cannot fathom a friend like you. I've got a lot of people in my life who are very gracious. But I'm not sure that I have betrayed as many people as often as you. Thank you. Thank you for being the rock that is higher than we are. Thank you for your deep, endless well of forgiveness and love, grace and mercy. Thank you for your promise to set all things right. Lord, we cling tightly to that promise. Help us, Lord, to trust you. Amen.